Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Hey everyone, Austin here with Colorado Custom Game Calls. Are you looking for a duck or goose call for next season? Are you a budget hunter? Well guys, let us know over here at Colorado Custom Game Calls. We provide high quality calls at affordable prices. We are budget hunter friendly. Whether it be the colors of the resin, the colors of the band, do you want something in your call? It's your call. You get to build it from the ground up. So guys, make sure you go check us out on our Facebook and Instagram and on the web at coloradocustomgamecalls.com. Welcome to the Foul Front Outdoors Waterfowl Podcast, where our goal is to recruit and educate new hunters while entertaining the rest of you. Without new hunters and the mentorship of those more seasoned, this passion as we know it faces an uncertain future. So get the word out, turn the volume up, and enjoy the show, because you're on the Foul Front. This week's episode is brought to you by Dive Bomb Industries, the fastest growing, most affordable decoys on the market, with unmatched customer service. Visit them online at DiveBombIndustries.com, on Instagram, or Facebook at DiveBombIndustries. Or go ahead and give them a call anytime, seven days a week, at 314-322-7468. And go ahead and use the promo code FOULFRONT, all undercase, with a space in between foul and front, for 10% off your next purchase of Dive Bomb Decoys. This episode also brought to you in part by Hunt Hickory Creek. And new to Hunt Hickory Creek this year is their Central Kansas Lodge. They're going to be running hunters from the end of October all the way through January. And their main hunting area is located between Kavira National Refuge and Cheyenne Bottoms. Now, Central Kansas is a special place for waterfowl hunting. And during the peak migration, these refuges hold hundreds of thousands, if not close to millions of birds at one time. So for your chance of a hunt of a lifetime, head on over to HuntHickoryCreek.com. Because if you're going to hunt Kansas... Hunt Hickory Creek. This episode is also supported by Goose Ninja Call Lanyards, 
MDR Custom Woodworks, Twisted Wire Upland Hunts out of Grand Island, Nebraska, and from our friends over at High Prairie Sportsman over on YouTube. All right, today we've got Rusty Burnham of Hardcore Brands, and Rusty mainly handles the product development, uh, media relations, and sales for Hardcore Brands. Uh, Rusty, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? We're doing well. We're doing well. Excited to have you on today. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for uh, inviting me and bringing me on. I've been looking forward to this. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think today, oh, and then, you know, I always leave him out in the introductions, but I do have Tegan with me here today, so. Rusty, how are you doing? Hey, man, I'm doing great. How about yourself? Can't complain. Just uh, don't want to interrupt anybody. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Always a good quality in a co-host, but. All right, so, you know, Rusty, uh, I guess kind of one of the main reasons we're having you on here is to maybe tell us a little bit about hardcore brand story and you know how you came to work there yeah ben you know that's kind of when we first talked spoke on the phone uh you know my association with hardcore and and since my time with the with the company i mean if if nobody out there listening i mean hardcore is a a to z waterfowl you know product manufacturer um with the majority of that really focusing heavily on the decoys now, that brand, Hardcore, has been around for quite some time, and most people will remember it from you know, early, mid-2000s, back in the day when it uh, first came out. Um, at that time, uh, it was, you know, pretty revolutionary. I mean, kind of a had-to-have. I mean, if you were serious, you were you were running Hardcore. I mean, full-body honkers, one piece, heads going every which way. Um, I mean, if you had a rig of those... It was uh, it was the real deal. Um, since that time, uh, like I said, that's early mid two thousands. You know, it, it hardcore did go through a chain of ownership um, to where it is today. Uh, I came to the brand in early twenty sixteen, and um, after that, you know, about that time is when um, there was a need for some change. Uh, some of the products, some of the material that was being used were, you know, was a little inferior to what was out on the market. And, uh, we decided to, you know, something needed to be done. And we kind of, you know, basically pulled everything up and started laying everything back down. And that, uh, kind of when a big rebrand started taking place with hardcore. Excellent. Excellent. Now that's, that's about the time that you showed up. That I came in right about that time, and um, we started working with uh, with new material, new decoy material. Uh, we were testing different products. We were coming from, uh, you know, a plastic that we had that the brand had been using in the past. It was super, super important to us to make sure that you know there was no stone left unturned in every aspect of this new this new decoy that we needed to make this new material that we needed to use knowing the end user side of it we're all hunters we know what we want we know what we need and um we were you know we took it very very seriously and i can't even tell you how much you know let's just say enter um the the tests right um we started we, when we started working with this with this new material, which is now developed into our current rugged series line, 
Um, and our uh, technology, which we call FileFlex, which is within the Rugged Series line, um, I mean, we we beat that stuff to death. The torture tests were unbelievable. I mean, off-grain bins, get shot out the window at 70 miles an hour, ran over with skid steers. So very uh, highly scientific tests, of course. Yeah. <laughs> very specific to the category. How's that? Yeah. Um, yeah. What guys are going to do with them? Uh, more than one decoys flew out of the bed of the truck on the interstate at 70 mile an hour. Uh, that needs to be like the next Mythbusters episode. Like, can a hardcore decoy go against this Tannerite? <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm not going to say that, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it'd be interesting. We'd be up for the challenge. But um, not only that, but just the elements, the cold weather, the heat. I mean, from the 150-degree barn it's being stored in all summer to the 20 below um, cold air that, that it's being, you know, used in, thrown in, the ice it's being frozen in, um, a, the whole gamut. Uh, and that's, I mean, we took it so serious that we ended up bringing this stuff to kind of like an internal team uh, to the tune of, you know, a very large quantity of these of this product in different you know different species we we used it in different you know different duck molds different goose molds and um we knew that there were some tweaks that had to be made still at that time but the main thing was we wanted to we wanted to get behind this well some you know to get behind this material and and see what how far we could push it and that's kind of what we did um after all of the testing, the tweaks, all the data has been brought in, the video, the photos, um, you know, we we started putting things on paper. Okay, this and that, and uh, from you know the my goodness, from uh, the shape of a decoy holding the material a little better than a, than another shape. So mm. it's not like oh, you're good. My mallards were awesome. My honkers are are t- are good too. Uh, it is specific to every mold. It is specific to well every species, and um, what that posed to us as a brand was going through the entire line of you know current decoys that we had, molds that we had to use, and. We then had to make sure that everything was congruent with the new material, which wasn't. So we, as a company, invested in creating those, recreating those molds and making those, you know, those molds fit to this, you know, this new material that we were using. Because, like I said, coming off of uh, the material that had been used in the past, we didn't want to leave any stone unturned. So... I mean that's just kind of getting into the start of of how rugged series and Fileflex came to be. Right. Right. And I know that's one thing that we had wanted to talk about was I think a lot of people, you know, they get their decoys, they show up uh they show up uh in a box at the doorstep and immediately, you know, it gets judged and it gets uh hunted over and then judged, but not a lot of thought goes into you know, the life cycle of, of a decoy and not everybody, uh, you know, and especially me, 
I'm no plasticologist. I don't understand, you know, how all that stuff works. And I think it's uh, it'd be definitely beneficial to go into, you know, from the the need of identifying what what kind of decoy you need, and all the way to it showing up uh, at my front doorstep. Sure, I mean there, as you said, a lot of people don't understand the backstory that that goes into a decoy. Um, for one, I mean there's if there's 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 a need for the decoy. Um, for two, to create that, you need a carver. For three, what are you trans? You know, communicating with communicating with the carver the need because you're dealing with an artist. He's got a vision in his head. You've got a vision in your head, and you know, they also can't forget at the end of the day, this is a business, and business relies on sales therefore where does this fit into the market and lots of things go into factor the size obviously the bigger the decoy the more material that's being used the more cost that's involved once all of those things kind of come full circle you and you've you know communicated your needs to to the carver he's started working on it um he gets it back to you, you know, usually through photos, Skype. Um, I mean, this and these guys, usually this isn't their day job. So they're turning and burning after work, 9, 10, you know, you're on Skype at midnight tweaking, uh, you know, the eyeball color of a wood duck drape. <laughs> but um, it's part of it. And, you know, you're, you're creating that decoy. But then as he's working on that, as I use that word material a lot because it's such a big word and so important, you know, it's, he needs to know what the end use of that product's going to be. He needs to know what it's going to be made out of. Um, he's got to watch the way he, he, he makes his cuts. He's got to watch his, his detail. He's got to watch, um, you know, there's just lots of it. And I'm not going to speak on behalf of Carver, but we all know those guys do incredible work. Right. Yeah. And, um, it's different than if it's going to be a painted piece of wood and set on a mantle. If it's going to be cast into a mold and then, you know, plastic injected into it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of times repetitively, what what's going to show detail, what's not going to show detail, uh, what's going to get picked up, what's not going to get picked up, uh, parting lines. Um, most people don't even recognize there is a parting line on the decoy. Um you know, all of those things have to go into play. He gets you back the product. You then, you know, as you know, most of the manufacturing is done is overseas. Well, working with overseas, you know, their business day typically starts when ours is ending. So communicating with them, showing them what this is going to, you know, what's this look like when it's done. Um Obviously, they have to give you back their information on cost. They need to give you back quantities that they can produce. Um, can they even do it the way that you want it? Um, once that's done, a decoy is, you know, a mold is made, decoys are cast. Typically, that those are, you know, air freighted back to, you know, to us. We then hand those back over to the carver. He makes his you know, he begins to paint. <laughs> well, then now you've got a paint scheme that you've got to mimic. Hmm. You take that paint, whether it's sometimes it can be done through steps, photograph each step with a little bit of text, 
what he did at each step, uh, the colors he used, um, you know, every detail. You, you can never give them too much information. Wow. Uh, taking that, sending that back over and having them run that through and show you what their reproduction of his, you know, artwork looks like. And I joke about, you know, Skype calls at midnight, but I can tell you, I woke up many mornings with my cell phone missed picture texts <laughs> of uh, very detailed parts of different species of ducks. Does it look like this? Can it look like that? Is this okay? Is that okay? How about this? We've ran into a problem here. Um, you know, okay. And, and you know, you work through all of that. And by the time that gets done, um, now you've got a decoy. And typically when you're dealing with a factory like that, the person that painted that sample isn't the person that's going to paint it in production. So that sample then again has to be reproduced by a team of people that each have individual painting steps that they have to follow. Once that's done, once those decoys are, you know, blown, once they're treated, once they're painted, once they're staged, then enters packaging. Um, there's artwork required for that, the dimensions of the box. You don't want to ship a bunch of air. So you want, you know, you need to have engineers working on the size of the box. Is it going to be a six-pack? Is it going to be a 12-pack? Um, just a lot of detail there that people probably don't even give a second thought to uh, when they're buying that cool new 12-pack. Um, obviously, freight is an issue. All things that's got to be considered when you're when you're starting to look at how are you going to package this. Um, and then once all that's created... Um, it it becomes a, it becomes a skew. It be, it becomes a product. It it gets ordered to a certain quantity, and uh, we bring it back over here and, and fill the shelf with it. Wow, that is a so, lot. Uh, I just have a brand new appreciation for decoys. Yeah, that, I mean, there's uh, there's quite a bit to it that a lot of people don't understand, and and um, like I said, it's. Lots of tweaks. It's not just a, you know, yeah, we've got it. We can do it now through every, you know, a mallard hen. You know, a relaxed mallard hen is the same as a, you know, super century full body Canada. It's not. Everything's got a recipe. It's all the same premise. It's basically all the same material, but there is, you know, different levels of ingredients that go into them. Um, and I didn't really even touch, you know, pain is such a huge thing. Yeah, that was the that was the one thing that blew my mind is is I guess I sort of thought this you know that was all kind of automated factory machine. That's how I um, imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily. In fact, uh, um, a lot of the time when decoys are made and painted in in a mass production situation in in an overseas you know where factory type environment, uh, masks are made, and um, these masks fit these individual species individual molds i'll refer to them as molds but they could be a mallard hen they could be a gadwall drake they could be a uh blue wingtail skimmer uh drake uh surface skimmer i mean everything has its own parts and there's just a lot of moving parts in every that goes into every every decoy that's being made yeah that's definitely a lot of moving parts that whole process uh, a lot of people involved i guess 
one of the first things that strikes me is the carver. You know, you think of the carver just making the carve, and then that's it. But, you know, after hearing the whole process, how much communication you have to have, you know, that's a very important piece to the puzzle is, is that sometimes hard to find, like, the right carver? Because, you know, maybe the guy is amazing with woodworking, but maybe he doesn't have the best communication skills or the most open free time. You know, sometimes it can be a challenge. Uh, we've had uh, our particular carver have got a really uh, good relationship. I would consider him a friend. and uh, While he has a day job, he's very open. Um, I mean, he's he can... If it flies, he can carve it, <laughs> and he can paint it. And, um, yeah, I mean, there will be times that uh, it's tough, but the more these guys are experienced, so it's it's a lot easier when you're working with somebody who has made a decoy that's that's gone into production before versus someone that never has. Um, you know, they might – they might carve uh, that one particular drake where on one side you can see the speculum on the wing feathers and the other side you can't. And you might, by the time that's taken down the line and gets to the factory and is being made, and they just can't understand why there's one side that's got paint and the other side that doesn't. Uh, or, you know, those nice brilliant colors, say, you know, purple uh, blue on a mallard drake, um, or white on a you know a gadwall drake. Um, so yeah, I mean it can be it can be tough sometimes <laughs> trying to communicate, uh, trying to get that as you know as as granular a detail as you can. Um, but you know that's one thing that we strive. To do. I mean, that's why we're, you know, on the phone, and that's why we're on Skype, and that's why we're, we do lose sleep a lot, and uh, we have these meetings and and communicate this, and uh, you know, and it might be, you know, seven people that are that are part of creating this one thing, and um, not just the carver. Uh, you know, take for instance uh, other end users, influencers. Um, you know, you definitely want to keep them, you know, in the loop of what's going on. Typically, they're part of the reason that you're creating what you're creating, um, because they, you know, they, they're, you know, they put their hand on it. They want, they know what they want it to look like, what it should look like. And, um, you know, you, you've just got to, it's just a, there's, like you said, a lot of communication and a, and a chain of people and a, and a good team. Right, and then like you were saying, the interesting part to all that is, is they can be the best artists in the world and have these crazy, you know, um, realistic things, but you have to be able to produce it, and so you have to be able to fit art within the constraints of logistics. Exactly, having the foresight to know what what it's going to be when it's done, and uh, what's the what's the intended purpose of the of the decoy. Yeah, absolutely, and then. I, I know you were wanting to. We were on decoys when we talk about, you know, we talked about, the, you know, the, the the different steps of production, and then we kind of we touched on paint, but then you know, level of detail. Um, I mean, it is definitely becoming 
more and more a detail game. Um, I personally love as much detail. I mean, there's there's this, there's times for as much as you can possibly put in a decoy, and then there's times for just white works. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, you know those kind of factors go into it as well. Um, you might, you know, on a. I'm personally, if I like bigger, more detailed duck decoys, for instance, right? If especially if I'm packing in, if I'm carrying, I'm limited on how much I can take. Uh, I'd rather have bigger and more visible and as realistic as I can get. Right. But when it comes to snow goose spread, if I don't necessarily have that perfect tuck, untucked feather <laughs> or have that, uh, you know, one side I can see a certain color because of the body angle and the other side I can't, that doesn't play as big a role. Right. So the other other things to to consider, you know, that the different thought processes that go into the you know creation of different decoys. You said, Russ, that your carver, if it flies, he can carve it. Now, so does that carver? Does he do all of your birds for you, or do you bring in other guys to maybe like specifically like uh, you know specialize in a certain species, or maybe a snow goose or a speckled belly, that kind of thing. You know, uh, yes, he he does have uh, – he himself has a team of individuals that he can rely on if needed to, uh, you know, if the workload were to get too large, so to say. Um, I know that when Hardcore started the kind of getting into the duck floater side, there were a lot of – a lot of different products that needed to be made. And at that time, you know, yeah, he simply couldn't do it all by himself. So yeah, there's, there's a team, uh, there's other carvers that, that, uh, you know, that he has worked with through the years that he feels confident in that, that can maybe do certain parts. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot to that, to carving. Um, all carvers that we've used, uh, you know, are competition carvers or retired competition carvers, uh, guys that, you know, are very good in their field. But uh, there might be certain parts that he just asks for help on. Uh, for instance, you know, if you take a decoy, uh, let's say a full-body goose or something, that's a big piece of wood. And that, imagine the body of that, say it's some type of an upright head position. Well, you know, you take that piece of wood and that back two-thirds of that body regardless of that head position, meaning to an extent, as long as it is somewhat of an elevated head, not necessarily eating corn between its feet, but uh, there's not a lot of changes there. So, I mean, there's there's manipulation that can be done in the mold, in the carving itself mm. to, uh, to just work on, you know, focus on that front third and simply add, you know, new heads so to say to an existing to an existing body so there's a there's a lot of you know given the scope of work to be done if for instance he you know needed to rely on somebody else to help out you know that's one way somebody could could come in maybe this guy does three heads right right uh 
so, you know, there's just a lot of, again, things people wouldn't realize or know when they're looking at it, you know, sitting on the shelf. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a pretty complex process, really. It doesn't sound like it, but uh, it doesn't look like it when you see them on the video, just cutting away with a... Right. It sounds like it now. <laughs> yeah. how, na- how naive of me to just think, yeah. oh, they've got this machine that just goes in and emulates this artist. You know, right. uh, of course. <laughs> I would say the biggest one would be that, you know, these guys have experience and they know what they're doing. And when you tell them what you need and what you're going to do with it and what it's going to be made of, uh, and these new materials has kind of presented a little bit of a learning curve, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, some of this, for instance, I'll give you an example. Uh, we had a, a the Rester Mallard Hen in our old mold pack. Uh, when we started working with this new material, she just didn't want to play very well with it. Her head would kind of go back. She wanted to look up. And it's simply because of the rigidity of the material. Um, you know, you're not dealing with something that's, you know, that's as rigid as a, you know, a hard piece of plastic. Uh, you're dealing with something now that has give, that has, that has the ability to flex. And, um, well, she just wouldn't work. And that's, for instance, was a time when I had shown him, you know, I posed this problem to him. And, you know, we've, we floated her in the sink. I mean, we, <laughs> we floated her. Well, we hunted over her, but I mean, we looked and, and we went all the way back to the carving for that and, and redid it. And when they, when he got to that part, you know, he had to take into account, you know, the, she can't look back. And where do I need to beef up? Where do I need to just, you know, make that a little bit stronger? Where do I need to leave out a little bit more? Where can't I not go as deep with detail and cut lines and and things like that? So, uh, and then once that was done, it was fine. But that's just the difference. Looking at it on the shelf, you would never know that that's a different decoy. Right. But it is. Yeah, that must be an interesting thing to be out there hunting over decoys and then... You know, seeing something in your decoys. Me, you know, I'm, I see something in my decoys. I'm like, oh, I got to move a couple decoys over here. I got to move a couple decoys over there. Um, or maybe that one's shining a little bit. But you're probably looking at decoys at a much different lens than than most people are. Yeah, anymore these days probably. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, what's... I mean, you, you got to love it. That's why you're in it in the first place, right? So you're, you know, you're intrigued with it and, uh, and, you know, it's, you want to, you know, the way you look at stuff when you become immersed in it and you, you do gain more knowledge of it, you know, it, it just totally changes the way you, you, you see things. So, you know, you're talking about that hen that was giving you problems and like paint me ignorant. It's amazing some of the things as much as I love duck hunting that I've never thought about before. And, you know, that's a great point that I honestly have never thought about when you're making certain body positions, you know, like whether it's a feeder, maybe a preener or, you know, something a little different than just your standard upright mallard. Like I've just never thought about that balancing them out so that they're floating properly on the water. Yeah. Because you just can't expect to, to carve this you know, this piece of wood and that it's going to set proportionally on the water, right? It means you've got to plan for that and, and spread that out. And 
like the keel, for instance. Now that's not a carved in piece. That's a piece that's added through the molding process. But uh, that's gonna, you know, that's got to be constantly in your head too on how the, you know, when you do attach that keel, given that it is the same keel throughout, and how the weight's distributed there. How's that gonna make the decoy ride? Um, you just, you know, there's a lot of you get bills too low to the water, and then bill slappers, as a lot of people like to call them, I call them surface skimmers. But you know, if you're in colder climates and and you you know you've you've heard them, you know, they slap in the water, and then ice builds up there, and then weight builds up there, and then those ducks start nosing down, and now now all those decoys are kind of you know at an angle, don't necessarily look you know. Probably not going to necessarily really affect the way you hunt, but something that you you know you're not really crazy about. Um, and then when you, how high does that bill need to be? Um, sometimes it you know that's just a chance you're going to take. You know, and if if the conditions don't allow for that style of decoy, then you don't use it. But um, you know, there's there's def- there's things to consider there. You know, as well. Um, but like you said, most people just think of a decoy it comes out of the box, you throw it in the water, it's going to float. <laughs> well, yeah. It's designed to be that way. <laughs> yeah. If, of course. if it, if it wasn't, it, you could have some serious problems, but, uh, I've had like, a few of those problems. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and then of course, you know, there's always the decoys that get shot and they want to sink on their own anyway. So yeah, those are the problems that I have. Oh, quite I've never done that. <laughs> But, hey, Rusty, you said earlier when you're doing your product development, you said you could have anywhere from like two to seven people, you know, pitching in on that. Those seven people are when you start getting more guys putting in opinions and ideas. Is that just within the company or are you branching out to you know, like outfitters or like hardcore hunters or people that are using the products like every day in the field? Primarily, yeah. We, we like to get input from all flyways. We like to get input from... Um, we have a pretty vast network of, of uh, people and, you know, let's call them promotional staffers for sake of this conversation, some of them, but outfitters for sure, um, you know, influencers, uh, yeah, guys that are out there using them, you know, 58 to 60 days of a 60-day duck season. Right. And, we you know, we definitely want to glean you know that as much information as we can from them and and uh you know they're the guys that are that are out there using it and um why i used to use it quite a bit i don't (laughs) find myself using it quite as much anymore but um i still absolutely we we wouldn't want to you know just you know use our own internal you know this is the way it needs to be this is how it's gonna go close-minded type of an attitude absolutely not we we always lean out lean on on other team members because you know it's just it's different it's different everywhere um it's so different here in missouri where i hunt versus where you know guys are you know then you're a cattail pothole in north dakota or a barley field in saskatchewan or you know rice field in california or uh, the Eastern Shore, or 
you know, a cornfield in New York, upstate New York. So um, while the, a lot is very similar, we still like to get that regional input. And um, that's kind of one of the, you know, that's one of the things I love about this business is um, is the people that you meet and the people that you work with and the friendships, and you know, essentially that you make. And, um, uh, you know, just... Yeah, for success. I would say so. I've I've been very humbled in the last five months that I've been running this podcast. I mean, you know, heck, I, I reached out to you, um, and then the next day, you know, I'm brushing my teeth and I get a phone call from. Is there okay? Answer the phone, and and then you and me, we talked all the way uh, <laughs> until it was time for me to head into work. You know, and you know, never. Would I have thought that I'd be talking to you know one of the lead personnel for a big brand such as yours? And it's just it, it. I'm always humbled by just how humble everybody else is and how down to earth everyone is to just talk and you know talk about ducks and geese. You know, absolutely. That's probably the biggest you know the biggest joy that anyone can get from this sport is just simply the the relationships and the friendships made. There's a meme that's been floating around on social media here recently about where would I be if, you know, if I hadn't met all these crazy people that I met chasing ducks or something like that. Right. And probably the the truest, (laughs) given it was social media, right? But probably the truest, uh, truest meme I've, I've ever read on there. Uh, but, uh, absolutely 100% correct you know your your phone rings all day long from people and you know not even in your own well a lot of Missouri people I speak to on a daily basis but you know just people outside of your local community but uh, you know you talk to them like they they live just down the street yeah you know we talked a little bit earlier you'd mentioned it uh, the promotional staffer and its role in the industry um, and kind of Maybe you want to talk about the origins of uh, pro staffs or what they used to be and like what they're supposed to be. Yeah, you know, that's a good topic. It's, uh, you know, you see it talked about a lot. It's uh, it's different now than it used to be. Um, you see it, I mean, you know, yeah, I don't want to be the, bring a negative tone to it, but you see a lot of bad light shed on it. Um, you know, in this category, waterfowl pro staff used to be, I mean, it was the sales force behind the brand. Um, it wasn't necessarily chosen by, you know, if you shot a limit every day for 60 days, it was chosen on the need, the regional need for some sales support to a dealer or a big box chain. Um, and those people would, you know, within an area, take a store somewhere in, in Arkansas, uh, those people would go in, they'd help set up the aisles, they'd help, they'd set the displays, they'd work the events, they'd help off unload the containers of product when they showed up. Um, they just kind of became a contact and a face of the brand for that particular dealer or that store owner. And uh, it worked very well. Um, it it's kind of changed <laughs> since then. 
um, it kind of became, I guess, what would you say, like a little status put behind it. Uh, and people, you know, strive to join these these staffs without really even knowing the the meaning behind it. I mean, I I could there probably still are people out there that don't understand that the word pro and pro staff stands for promotional and not professional. And that when that <laughs> when that comes out, it, you know, it, it totally changes the, the meaning of, you know, and the look of the position. Right. But uh, pro staff, you know, it's an extension of the sales force. Yeah. There's hired salesmen that go in and work with these dealers and have the relationships and, and go into the retail environments and sell the product take the orders and sell the product, but they can't be everywhere at one time. They really, you know, can use a little helping hand of people within the area. One, two, three guys that, you know, go in there and and, and frequent that, that dealer on a regular basis. Just stop in and say, hello, see how things are going. How are sales? Is there anything we can do? Um, educate their employees on the product. Um, that's a big one. Uh, setting up seminars to to discuss a line of new products coming out for the coming fall for the, you know, with the brand. Um, there's just not a lot of that done anymore. Um, but that, in my mind, that's the true meaning of a promotional staffer. Right. Yeah, you know, being the youngin' in the group, I have very much so grown up in the digital age and, you know, you talk about when pro staff first started that there was guys actually doing physical work, going to trade shows and setting up uh, local stores and shops and setting out the product and talking to salesmen and explaining the product to them like you were saying. And it's almost kind of sad now that there's so many people who get on these pro staffs 100% through social media or email and they never once even meet. Uh, the person or the face behind the product, or they never once have a personal or physical relationship with them. Mm-hmm. I would, I would agree. Um, it seems like everything requires pro staff now, um, regardless of the product or the category. Um, but again, I still lean on. I I think it's a viable asset. Um, it's a, you know, it. they take a long time to create. Um, you just can't. <laughs> you just, a lot of people don't know what's expected of them. That's the number one question would be, you know, well, what do I do? Right. Well, I guess that leads into, uh, you know, what do you have to do um, to truly be somebody that is a, a valuable person to a company's marketing strategy? If you want to be a, a legitimate uh, promotional staffer, what does that what does that entail for you? You know, obviously, you know, as we've said before, this is a business, and um, we we want to keep it as such. And there's a little bit of formal formalities and a, and a process that goes into place. You know, we do want to we do want to have an interview. We do want to speak with the person. We will ask them a few questions. Um, typically, uh, references will be provided. Um, we you know, we'll, we will contact the references, um, and genuinely, 
there'll be someone within their location, someone in their area that, you know, that's already existing and then they'll begin communication with this person. And it's a, you know, it's coming on show season. We've got a show in Fargo. Uh, we want him to, you know, excited to get him in his first show, but are you going to send him by himself having never done this, <laughs> never done this before, you know, all alone with, you know, a box of stickers and hats and, and give him a name of a contact to look for when he gets to the store. Absolutely not. You know, you, you kind of bring these guys up with, more tenured guys and let them, you know, that's what, you know, the beauty of, of having a good solid staff and having veteran tenured guys to be able to take these guys and, uh, you know, kind of show them how to, how things work for lack of better words. And, you know, typically you'll find out, you know, very quickly whether or not that, uh, you know, there's, they, they're interested in pursuing this. They're still, you know, they're still on board. Um, you know, it's kind of like any job situation, right? Um, you know, you, you go through a, you go through an interview process. There's a little bit of a probationary period. You know, you kind of get to go out on your own after that and, um, represent the brand. Uh, like you said, there's obviously other stipulations that go that go with within it. We you know we ask that, that people above all be you know honest, good, ethical sportsmen. Uh, we ask them to be good mentors. Um, we always always encourage you know <clears throat> participation in local youth events, uh, maybe even hosting some type of a of a youth hunt. Um, you know just. All of the basics, basic stuff that that uh, one would expect out of somebody that's kind of the, you know, an extended face of the company. Right. Uh, now, you know, how frequently do these, you know, promotional staffers or the, you know, the guys you have out in the field, um, you know, you talked a little bit about it during the production process and identifying needs and things like that. Um, how frequently do these guys bring innovation, or how, how do they bring innovation, and how does that come to the come to the you know the boardroom uh, table? Well, some you know everybody's kind of got their niche, right? So maybe some guys aren't more on that side; they're more on the retail side, they're more on the sales side, whereas other guys are more more into the ground zero. Uh, you know, in the field side, actually in the field more, actually run clients, maybe lots and lots of people, you know, lots of, lots of, uh, you know, uh, you know, face to face meetings throughout the season with, with different, with different folks. Um, so I'd say, you know, and then another thing that we really haven't covered on promotional, you know, kind of this team of people, uh, why they all are kind of under the umbrella as promotional guys you know these niches um maybe some of them are photographers um we work in a category that you can never have enough images uh it is a constant ongoing need and especially every year when you're coming out with new product and you hopefully sample that product the, the fall before so you have all that imagery to take to market when you launch that new product 
So you've got, you know, maybe you've got some videographers, you've got photographers, you've got kind of your, your key sales guys, and then you've got your, you know, kind of your guys that are, you know, they're in the field. It's what they do. Um, they hunt every day of the season. They run clients. Uh, they use stuff. They're, you know, they aren't necessarily careful <laughs> with their stuff. Right. Uh, you know, you take a, you know, this new material that we've been working with, you know, the foul flex within the, our rugged series, you know, you take that one piece honker and, you know, you pull up in the field and pile of decoys and you just start chucking men. So who's going to be a better judge of paint? Who's going to tell you what's, you know, what's wearing? Uh, how's the flocking holding up? Um, do they need flocking? You know, what do you, you know, there's, I'd say that everybody kind of has their own thing that they bring to the table. Right. Not necessarily, you know, all of them doing the same thing. What's your advice to a, a young man or woman that's looking to become a promotional staffer or um, looking to contribute to your company? Um, you know, whether their reasons, you know, at first everyone's reasons probably start off a Pretty selfishly, I would say, you know, trying to, you know, I'm out here a lot and I'm killing a lot of birds and I, you know, I, I want to use these types of products and, and get a couple, you know, decoys for free. What what would you caution, uh, you know, these people that are, you know, up there taking pictures, throwing out hashtags and things of that nature? Hey, do you mind if I build off of that? I'm really glad you asked that because one of the things I wanted to ask was what should a pro staff person expect to get on their side of the deal? Okay. Well, let me start with <clears throat> Ben's part first. Um, you know, my advice to anybody that's that uh, is out and you know, obviously they're in, they enjoy this. They found a passion for it. They feel like they want to take it to the next level. That they they want to do something to kind of express their passion a little bit more than simply going out and hunting with their family or their friends. Is uh, be it our company, be it you know a, a, another category, a big game or whatever is, is I would I would research the company. I would go to their website. I would look and see who is already affiliated with the company. I would see who was in my area that had any relationships or affiliations with that company, and that's where I would start. I'd start more you know as local as possible, then kind of work my way up through that, and. Um, you know, I'd, I'd send the emails at first. I know that a lot of people think that those emails go in a black hole, but, uh, you know, they they don't. Um, but I, I would just be that ever, you know, if, if the drive and the passion is there and that's what you want to do, then you're typically going to find a way to get yourself front and center of that brand or someone affiliated with that brand that has the opportunity to you know, to give you a position, you know, like you're looking for. Um, to that other question, what do, you know, what's, what's in it for me kind of, you know, there's a, there's a myriad of things that, uh, that promotional staffers, um, and as far as compensation for them on their side, you know, there, you know, there is a, uh, they typically do receive, you know, a, a discounted pricing, uh, throughout the, the product's, they, uh, you know, a lot of times get industry deals. Uh, it might not necessarily be for your brand. There might be a, um, 
another brand that's that's working with your brand that uh, is offering a, a level of discount to your to your uh, promotional guys as well. So, um, and then there's kind of you know the intangibles, the you know the not everybody might be able to take a part of, but uh, somebody. You know, somebody in a certain region gets to, they're going to have a big photo shoot, and and you get invited to it. And um, the next thing you know, you've made all these relationships. My thing about with these promotional guys and why I still think it's a viable factor is <clears throat> is if you, when you build these people, they're all over the United States, Canada. You know, these guys just know each other by a screen name and photos that are on now it's social media it used to be message boards back in the day but uh you know social but you get these guys together and you have these annual trainings and when you get these guys together you got two guys that are that are passionate about the same thing they've never met but now they're meeting so guess what now they're hunting together and now you've just taken you know two smaller units and made a bigger unit that's out there promoting your brand. Does that make sense? Um, it's kind of hard to put that into words, but to me, that's always been one of the one of the huge benefits and one of the you know one of the key factors that I've seen personally in my years of, of being around pro staffs and, and watching them work is is those relationships. And now you're you know you've got a whole team of individuals that are going out together to. You know, maybe it is just <clears throat> to to get a ton of content for you to use uh, digital assets and social media or e-commerce website photos or packaging or you know a myriad of needs. But, but um, that's one of them. Right. You know, the old the old adage that one plus one can equal three. So exactly, exactly. Well, awesome. So. Being in the industry, how long have you been in the industry? Uh, gosh, I <laughs> I think I started my first promotional <laughs> spot in uh, 05, 06, 2005, 2006, I think is when I started. Yeah. Prior to that, I had been working at retail, outdoor retailers, uh, I've been working for not-for-profits. I've been doing all the banquet work, the chapters, chairman, secretary, treasurer, uh, and just, you know, lots of things leading up to actually becoming, you know, an extension of a brand. Right. So when did you, when did you get started hunting? I probably started hunting. I, I, I started going before I could carry a gun, and then when I started carrying a gun – um, it really fueled my fire. Um, I was probably, gosh, I don't know. I was old enough to walk on my own and, and, uh, not complain about the cold, I guess. <laughs> I guess that's how old I was when I would, I just have <clears throat> very vivid memories when I was a kid. I mean, we would, the uh, two weeks or so before season when we'd build blinds and, and I would always go along and I'd help and, you know, I'd be there doing it and alongside, you know, helping as best as a, you know, seven, eight, nine-year-old can. But, 
that that's some of my fondest memories. And then going up, you know, it was always November 1st was here was our opener. And and that meant if you were going November 1st, you missed October 31st night, which was Halloween. Mm. So you got a kid that's missing Halloween to go stay in a camper (laughs) so that he can be there with grandpa and dad at daylight on November 1. And uh, I wouldn't change it for the world. Those are some of my fondest memories growing up as a kid. And then when I started carrying a gun and my first bird was snow goose, uh, snow geese. We shot lots of snow geese in those days. Uh, Didn't have Canada geese here in this part of the country then. Uh, they there wasn't a resident population like there is now. Uh, I remember my first ducks came four or five years later, but uh, my first year, you know, I started with you know carrying a gun four ten. Yeah, that <laughs> you know you think what are you really doing? But you know it doesn't matter because you were there and you were carrying a gun, and um, and then it. You know, that was actually still in the lead shot days. So, so adding some lead to the air. So Yeah, you bet. But uh, yeah, some of the fondest memories I have in my childhood were, were definitely, you know, prepping for season, hunting, you know, weekends in the blind and uh, you know, we would stay up in the area so we didn't have to drive so far in the next morning, you know, spending two, three days at a time. That's kind of what got me started. Do you think that there's anything that um, you've learned from being in the industry um, that's made you a, a better hunter in the field? I don't, you know, I, yeah, there's, you know, there's lots of things. You're always learning, right? There's always things to learn. You're never going to figure them out all the way. But I would say that it might not so much be the learning is the the enjoyment of the time spent in the field with the people that you've met along the way. That's probably been one of the, one of the, you know, most, uh, you know, things that I've, that I've cherished since I've been in this industry is, is those relationships and and hunting with those people and, and different people and, and the memories that have been made with the, with those people that you probably never would have had the opportunity to make them with it. Had you not have been, you know, worked side by side with them, worked shows with them for years, uh, traveled with them, you know, that kind of a thing. So I'd have to say it's, you know, you're always learning and there's always, you know, there's always a better mousetrap. But, right. I think that if you want to learn something about waterfowl, it doesn't matter whether or not it's someone's been hunting longer than you or if they're, it's their first season, take somebody else out hunting right. and you'll learn something. Go to somebody else's place. See how they do it. You know, implement, yeah. take something from that back to your spot or, you know, you know, what they did with their spinners or they didn't use them or they only used them here. And, you know, try that or, you know, what they, they're digging in. Well, you know, and you, and then you dig in or, you know, what they, you know, it's just, plus you, you know, different areas, different birds, they're going to act different, but still, you know, gives you an excuse to try something new, right? Yeah. Now that gives me one opportunity question that I always love to ask people is how do you use spinners? Well, personally. 
you know, I think we always carry them. We've always got them with us. Um, and I'd say the majority of the time we always start out with them. But um, would would you be more specific to the to water, or would you be more specific to like a a dry field? Oh, whatever yet. Uh, yeah, maybe just go with water for the sake of this question. Well, for water, and if it's a nice, you know, that sun's out, and I'm starting with them, I'm using them. Uh, you know, if I can, I'm probably gonna, I'm gonna get them as low as I can. I'm gonna play with that. I'm gonna, I'm talking about birds that are maybe not reacting to them the way I should think they should be reacting before I completely pull them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm gonna set them out there. I'm gonna. I'm going to put them low. I'm going to put them at different heights. Um, probably never going to have just one. Um, I'm going to have a tall stake for, for one or two of them. And keeping in mind, I'm, I'm talking about a place that, you know, this is a, this is a place of opportunity. I just found them in here. Um, nobody else has got them. It's let's call it public. Um, I'm going to go in here and hunt them in the morning. Um, I'm probably going to have two or three with me, and I'm going to have them at varying heights, especially if it's going to be sunny. If it's going to be cloudy, I'm, I might not even set them out. Um, but uh, that would probably be – I'll never forget <laughs> the first spinner. I didn't, I didn't see a spinner in person before I saw the first – the first encounter I had with the spinner is seeing what it did from about 500 yards. So that's what made me a believer was uh, hunting on a public piece of ground and every duck in the country working into this group. And then finally getting, cause you know, back then it was just one stake and I think it came in three pieces and it was a shell decoy that was converted with a motor underneath it and four D batteries that you didn't want to put in it until you got out there. Cause you were sure going to lose them walking out. Um, and seeing the effect of it, Holy cow. And, uh, that's what got me excited about it and got us using them. And, you know, it was, you know, it was, it was quite a deal there for a while. Again, like everything else, I think they've lost their effectiveness over the years, um, like a lot of products have. But I still think that they work. I still think that there's times when if you didn't have them, you, you probably wouldn't have had the success you did. But um, I like a lot of white. I like the flash. Um, I like to, you know, anything that, that draws attention or that's visible and can be seen. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in that. Yeah, you know, I'm a I'm a huge bias to biology person, and you know, waterfowl don't have the uh, best long term memory. It's not horrible, but I always say, you know, if people would just stop using all motion decoys right at this minute, every single person in the country, and just let it sit for a little while, you know, three, five, ten years from now, it would be just like when they very first came out again, and everyone would just they would you know. Ducks would be flying into the mojos once again. <laughs> Could be, but it's going to be a hard time convincing everybody to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
For sure, for sure. Hey, Russ, do you want to talk about, uh, you know, you touched on this a little bit earlier, talking about different species and the carving, but you want to get into some specifics with uh, what all you guys offer in your product line and, you know, primarily decoys, but I know you guys make other waterfowling gear and products, so if you want to branch off and talk about any of that stuff, feel free to as well. Sure, absolutely. I mean, we could, you know, like I said, we truly are an A to Z manufacturer. We carry just about every piece of equipment that one would need uh, as far as kind of the meat and potatoes of product that a guy wants, you know, when he's going afield to hunt ducks or geese. You know, obviously duck floaters start with mallards. We have a 12-pack mallard that's more of a, it's our field series line. It's a smaller, it's more budget-friendly. Um, it's a very good carving. Um it's six drakes and six hens. A lot of guys look at that decoy and think, I don't need it, but I can tell you what, it's light and you can carry a lot of them. Um, what's really nice about our little 12-pack of mallards is we did not choose to use kind of a, you, when you'll notice kind of more at that uh, that price point decoy, that budget decoy, you'll see uh, like a different like a different keel system. Uh, might just be a sliver of plastic or or something with a little bit of weight in it. We chose to go ahead and, and use our patent whale tail keel in our 12-pack that we carry in every one of our floating decoys. So it's a nice, you know, it's a nice value add to a 12-pack of ducks. Uh, so there's that uh, Field Series 12-pack of mallards, and then enter our standard mallards. Now, our standard mallards are uh, a little larger, uh, now this is when you're starting, they're all, they're one piece. Uh, you start to get into the myriad of, of poses. Um, we've got, you know, a rester drake, we've got an active drake, we've got a surface feeder, uh, well, coming out with <laughs> surface feeder drake, a surface feeder hen, but just a variety of poses in that line. Uh, we sell that, we sell that decoy four drakes, two hens, it's a six pack, um, and it, like I said, it's it's our standard. It's a little larger than, you know, it's more of a life-size mallard. Um, and then come to our mag mallard series. Now, our mag is a much larger floater. Uh, we currently do it in a rester right now, a drake and a hen, four drakes, two hens. It's, uh, it's a big spot. I mean, it, it uh, I'm personally probably my favorite. Um, mallard floater that we make. I, I like I said before, I'm kind of a fan of the bigger decoy. Um, <clears throat> but uh, that's three three skews right there of uh, mallard floaters. We have a wood duck floater. We have a pintail floater. We have a widgeon floater. We have a gadwall floater. All of these other other ducks, I like to call them. Uh, we package three drakes, three hens. Uh, all available in six packs. Um, that kind of rounds out kind of the, uh, you know, uh, pothole birds. And then you get into divers. We have ringnecks, bluebills, canvasbacks, and redheads. All our divers are foam filled. They're all part of our rugged series. They are not foul flex as everything else I just mentioned is our new material. Um, our divers are not because they're foam filled, but uh, it take you know, 
the new material itself, like I said, throwing it out of windows at 70 miles an hour, throwing some grain bins, running over with skid steer. <laughs> a foam-filled diver is a pretty hardy decoy, too. Right. Uh, you can It can take a licking and uh, literally keep on ticking. But um, that kind of rounds out most of the ducks. We do make a coot. Um, getting into, you know, on the goose side, we do have Canada goose floaters. We have four different head positions. Those are two-piece. Um, our Canada goose floater is, is a pretty, I don't have the dimensions off the top of my head, but it's a, it's a substantial size goose floater. Uh, we do sell those in six packs. Uh, we have a snow goose floater, a blue goose floater and a speck floater as well. Um, oh, I left the teal out of the ducks. We do a blue wing and a green wing, uh, sell those in six packs, um, and a shoveler. I mix. I miss those also. That does kind of round out the duck floaters and the goose floaters. Enter the full bodies. We do a six pack, what we call a touchdown pack. And by touchdown, what I mean is we have a mix of heads. We have up. We have your up and your down. So typically, guys are going to call it more of your upright century and or your feeder. Uh, we put those together and bundle it and call it a touchdown. So we have a a touchdown full body mallard and a touch uh, touchdown full body mallard with flocked head drakes. Then we also do a, a six pack of full body mallard feeders. So we you know we try to break it up so guys can you know have that amount that they want. Um, not everybody wants a mix. Guys might want to go heavy on those feeders. And that's why we offer them as, you know, a standalone six-pack. Going into a black duck, we do a touchdown full-body black duck. There's uh, three drakes or four drakes and two hens in that pack. Um, And I guess enter Canada geese, the kind of the the heart and soul of the whole thing. Our Canada goose decoys are one piece. There are six different postures. They all incorporate the new material, FileFlex. They're all in our Rugged Series line. Um, we offer them in flocked head options, and then we offer a fully flocked option. You can get them in a six-pack touchdown or a six-pack feeder. So that's basically four skews of Canada geese and full bodies. Um, what I haven't spoke of is for 2018 fall, this coming fall, we have made a new motion system. Um, talk about <laughs> talk about a lot of a lot of people, a lot of involvement, a lot of a lot of moving parts. You know, design one of those motion system like on your your full body on birds full on our full body decoys. Yeah, it used to be a simple straight stake system that went up into a you know a long cylindrical cone. Um, and then a bungee strap that hung below the decoy with a hook welded on the base of the decoy or the base of the decoy base. And the bungee strap would prohibit the decoy from doing a 360-degree spin, you know, an unnatural erratic spin on the on the stake. Um, that's what the bungee served. 
the bungee kind of a trademark of the old hardcore from back in the day. The kind of the look was that bungee system, and we didn't we didn't want to lose the bungee because it keeps the look of the heart of hardcore. But what we found that we would like to put that lim- put those limitations in the stake in the the cone and the topper of the stake versus having to use the bungee. So we designed a new cone system for all our full bodies that uh, is pretty freaking cool, let me tell you. I mean, I've I've seen a lot of – I've played with a lot of different systems. I've, I've hunted over a lot of different systems. This is really, really neat. If you can visualize, the cone itself will be inside the decoy you kind of have to see it to understand how it works and operates. But the really interesting and, and cool part of it is the stake topper. So visualize a T, the letter T. So the top of the handle is kind of fl- is a flat surface like a T. And when you go to setting stakes, in the, you know you you start setting you know a five gallon bucket worth of stakes when you had nothing but that you know pencil eraser-sized <laughs> rod going into your palm constantly, it really did kind of start aching on your hand <laughs> after right. a while. Um, Especially in the cold. Yeah, hard ground. So, so now you're basically grabbing, if you can kind of visualize how the old Allen wrenches used to come, you know, the big pack where they had the T-handle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so kind of visualize that. That's what you're grabbing and shoving in the ground, and that's what you're grabbing and pulling out of the ground when you're picking up yeah i'd so, imagine that'd be a little easier it's it's made pickups and set up a breeze i've always been a stake guy versus a base guy um hardcore's had a lot of luck with the base system a lot of people like the base i think hardcore's responsible for converting a lot of people to bases and we made our six slot goose bag the slot uh, dimensions uh the size of a decoy connected to the base I mean, pretty easy peasy. But, you know, when you start dealing with a decent volume of decoys and you're setting out that, you know, 10 to 20 dozen, um, being able to shove those stakes in the ground and just literally drop and go is so much easier. Um, You're saving so much time. The decoy self-writes. This new motion system not only gives the decoy left to right, it won't allow it to do the 360 like I mentioned before. It will go left to right. It will kind of has a little left to right wobble. And then it will also give it a little front to back tip if you can kind of visualize yeah. that. So you're, you're kind of pretty three natural. <laughs> exactly. Three axes of motion out of one system. Now, with that said, we did, inc- we did add that topper to the base. So you can still use bases and still drop your decoys on them. Uh, um, the bungee is still there. The clip for the bungee is still there. And if guys just really want to bungee their decoy down, if they feel like it's, you know, you've had those days where the wind is just rolling and nothing in the world's going to make those decoy. It's just too much wind. Right. They're, you can lock those decoys down now with that bungee and, and and keep them from, you know, basically almost lock out any any motion from them. 
So I'm I'm really excited about this new this new system came came about with uh, the invention of our new snow goose. Yeah, I'm pretty excited to check that out now. And I know exactly what you're talking about with uh, you know the traditional bungee around the hook on the stake. Uh, I always just put the decoy right on the stake and I don't even bungee it just for that reason that I like having the motion. But then also uh, opposite of that is when you get a good you know, late winter, 30-mile-an-hour wind in Kansas, and all of a sudden your bird is doing 360s. It's joining all the other birds. That are yeah. Or, <laughs> so that's pretty cool that you've kind of met in the middle of those two opposite problems. Absolutely. You can you can leave it or you can lock it, and it's up to you on how you want to hunt it. Uh, probably, you know, 90, 90 to 95% of the time you would never need to lock it. Um, but there's those guys that just want to, and there's those guys that want to keep bases attached to their decoys all season long. I know a guy, for instance, in Northern Illinois that hunts on a sod farm. That's the way he likes it. He likes to pull out. He likes to pull his decoys out of his slotted bags with a base on it, set them out. Uh, he's got some older gentlemen that hunt with him. It just makes it easier for them. Um, and that's the way he wants to do it. So he'll probably leave his bases attached all the time. Yeah. Now, you got the space. That's <laughs> whatever works for you. Exactly. And, uh, but you take the guy like in Kansas and say he's hunting lessers, right? He's probably putting out more than four or five dozen. And uh, you know now this guy's using this guy's punching stakes in the ground. Um, but uh, it it's just yeah, it's trying to fit everybody, right? So. Hey, you mentioned that you guys uh, have some flocked mallards, Rusty and. I got to pick your brain while we got you on the phone here because, you know, in the recent years of waterfowling, some of the most hype has been around uh, flocked heads, and you hear so much controversy on it, you know, the pros and the cons of painted versus flocking. I would just kind of like to hear, you know, what your opinions are. Uh, Maybe you have some personal feelings for the pros and cons of either or the or. You know, I think flocking definitely has its place. I think if you're, you know, like I said, you know, if you're if you're taking in, if you've only got room for that smaller rig, um, and you're, in my opinion, when I go small, I try to go as lifelike as possible. I absolutely will would definitely grab as much flocking as I could find. But uh, as a general rule, and kind of the way I hunt, um, I you know I'm not necessarily easy on stuff either. And um, while flocking is you know, durable, there it's still going to wear over time. Um, and I can tell you this: that flocking, when it wears, to the to the person's eye standing there holding it, you know, ten inches from their face, well, this looks terrible. But in my opinion, once a decoy gets somewhere on that flocking you set it down and you back up about 20 30 40 feet now look look at it it to me it adds it call me crazy but i think it adds a little bit more realism to the look of the decoy um it's just it's kind of like camo right when you get too much together and you get away it looks black but when when a decoy does get a little bit of use on it flock decoy fully flock decoy for instance um, I think that it, I think it, it, it enhances the look of that decoy. You know, that's super interesting. And I'm so glad you said that because I try to tell people this all the time. 
uh, when people are maybe a little picky with their decoys that, you know, I've had the privilege to ban a lot of ducks and geese. And when you start getting a mass of live birds and pins and crates, it's amazing the individual details that each live bird has. And, you know, sometimes a nick or two on some flocking, it almost looks realistic, just like you said, like, you know, whether this mallard has more testosterone than the guy next to him or he's older or maybe this one got in a fight, maybe got caught in fishing line. I mean, it's crazy when you get a bunch of live birds together. I mean, they still are individuals. And so, you know, maybe a nick or ding on your decoy isn't the worst. And like you said, it's a lot different uh, from a bird who's 30 yards in the air versus a person (laughs) holding the decoy three feet in front of their face. Right, exactly. And I don't think a lot of people take the time to, you know, use that kind of rationale. Um, But when they do, I think it's pretty easy to see. Yeah, but yeah, like you said, it's all different, and that's they, birds are always, you know, while they all look the same, they all are all a little different, and you know, just different little tips and you know strategies that you can implement in your decoys. You know, different sizes, use some mags, use some standards, use some, you know, mixing your full body ducks in with your, you know, your full body honkers, um, you know, uh, using white decoys to shoot mallards over. Um, you know, it's, you know, that's can be, you know, you take a snow goose rig that's been thrown in and out of a trailer a hundred times. <laughs> tell me those decoys look like they just came. <laughs> but yet you set that on a hilltop and a flock of mallards comes over and it's like a Hoover vacuum. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Especially you think about some of the situations, a lot of goose hunters or snow goose hunters are hunting and, I mean, those things are getting muddy and banged up, yeah. and absolutely, that's uh, that's kind of what goes back to the detail. You know, being kind of a the first bird I ever shot, kind of living in this area, um, being known for snow geese. You know, am I looking for that? Am I looking for that mantelpiece carving in a snow goose full body? Not really. I'm looking for something that. Uh, is, you know, I can carry a bunch of them. They don't weigh a lot. They move like nobody's business. And I really don't need to baby them. And that, to me, is pretty much the ultimate full-body snowviews decoy. And, yeah, there's lots of other types of decoys that can be utilized within a full-body spread that definitely can help you, you know, can help add success with movement and things like that. But, for instance, with our new rugged series, you know, full body snows and blues, you've got that more lifelike size, so you're carrying more. You've got the new materials, so you're literally throwing these things in the trailer as fast as you can chuck them. And you've got the new motion system. These things are dancing on stake. And, I mean, there's not – you've got two feeder positions and you've got an upright position. And – I mean, sit down, you know, lay down, turn the e-collar on, and have fun. Because uh, <laughs> that's uh, I'm I'm really excited about these new decoys. But um, you know, that just kind of shows you the different levels of detail and the d- different thought process that need to go into play when you're when you're creating these things. Yeah, I need to throw in a little uh, tidbit here for you, Rusty. Uh, for all you listeners out there, just throwing a little extra plug. 
if you guys have not seen it yet, you have got to go to YouTube and check out the uh, Hardcore Decoy Snow Goose Hunt video with Tony Vandemore because that video is awesome. Yeah, it's really, you know, they, you know, that was obviously the inaugural year of this decoy, kind of the prototype year. Uh, Tony and the boys just, you know, they're not light on their stuff, right? I mean, what he's using, he's using it like he's showing you he's using it. And he's used a lot of them. And, I mean, like you said, the proof's in the pudding. Go view that video and, um, Maybe you can add a link to it in the in the right of, of this podcast. But uh, yeah, absolutely, it's um, you know it's it's a very viable decoy, and I feel that it's going to be uh, in just about every every snow goose hunter's arsenal before it's before it's over with. Once they've had the chance to experience it. Excellent. All right, Rusty. So uh, we always kind of ask these questions. You get one last hunt. The last hunt you get to go on. Uh, where are you going? Who are you going with? Um, what are you What are you throwing out? And what are you hunting? One last hunt. Man, I'll throw make... the weather conditions in there for us too. You get to play with that too. Oh, I can I can control that destiny. Yep, <laughs> so yep. This you is pick a... everything. <laughs> Man, I don't know. If it, if I had one last hunt, I would probably be. With my dad and my nine-year-old son, and it would be, you know, we'd be hunting mallards. And it'd probably be some backwater off the river. Um, maybe like a little, you know, a little, not necessarily timber hole, but, you know, a little pothole off the woods. You know, like a, a scoured out blowhole, you know, type of a scenario. It'd be bluebird day, north wind be rolling, and uh, I think that'd be, uh, and it'd be, you know, mid-November, <laughs> and I'd be right here in Missouri. That's that's what I'd be doing. Excellent. So we talked a little bit about, um, you know, where it'd come from and where it is right now, but uh, where's hardcore headed? What's the future for them? Well, sky's the limit. Um, we're going to continue to, you know, put the emphasis on the product, um, not have a design to shelf type mentality. Uh, we're really going to run things through the paces. We're going to keep, we're going to try to, you know, keep trying to be as innovative as we can and 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 put the the product out there that that demands, you know, the quality that can stand behind the name Hardcore. Um, I think you're going to see from us, you're going to see, you're going to see new decoys. You're going to see more, you know, one piece type molds. Uh, you're going to see, uh, uh, you're going to see a, a better, uh, showing in the retail marketplace. Um, I, I really think that people are going to be excited. They're going to bring them a re- reliable, you know, rock solid decoy, you know, at a very economical price. So I think you're going to see a lot of hardcore in the coming years. Well, awesome. All right. So uh, last little bit, a uh, little bit of, you know, plugging. 
Where can we find? <laughs> I think that's pretty easy. Um, we can find you in most places. But uh, anything that you'd like to let the listeners know uh, before we get on out of here? Well, they can, you know, they can always check out the website, you know, www.hardcore-brands.com. Um, we try to keep that as up to date as we can. Uh, we're getting ready to add a bunch of new products now that aren't currently on there, but will be coming on there soon. Uh, they'll find us on the shelf at Bass Pro Shop uh, this year. There'll be uh, uh, several dealers. Uh, too many to mention or that I can recall from name right now to list. But uh, as far as um, we will be on dropship, uh, you'll be able to purchase us online at uh, Bass Pro, at Cabela's, at Shields, and uh, Gander Mountain, and Dick's Sporting Goods, and Field and Stream. So, you know, there's, but if you've got any questions about the product, if anybody does, or if they want to look at the stuff, you know, kind of get a little more, you know, info a little more intel i would definitely steer them towards the website all right sounds good well rusty hey we appreciate you coming onto the show uh we know you're a busy man and and uh like you said you're probably just about to start answering phone calls from uh manufacturers <laughs> hopefully no midnight facetimes today. yeah hey you never know <laughs> but like i said hey we appreciate you coming on and um Really, uh, everything that uh, you did for the listeners today, and you know, wish you the you know get out and hunt a few times this upcoming season, hopefully, and uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, guys, I appreciate you inviting me. I enjoyed it, and uh, looking forward to possibly talking with you again down the road. And um, again, like I said, if your listeners have any questions, you send them to the link in the the website, but. Uh, uh, really enjoyed it. All right. Hey, thanks a lot, Rusty. Yeah, thank you. Take care, guys. Right, thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Fowl Front Waterfowl Podcast. Please come join us on our Facebook group, the Fowl Front Waterfowl Podcast group, where you can connect with a good group of hunters because we're all in this together. We need to act like it so that hopefully our great, great grandkids will be hunting ducks over our favorite public lands. Uh, we also ask that you go ahead and give us a written review on iTunes and give us five stars if you think we deserve it. And we really do want to hear back from you uh, so that we can give you the best possible content. I mean, if you get in on that Facebook group, you can get in there and you can ask questions and you can tell us what you want to hear next or you can tell us uh, what you don't like. And we'll be sure to tailor things to our listeners. So, All right. Stay safe out there, and we will see you next week. Hey, you ever been sitting in front of your TV just wondering why you can't catch the latest episode of The Foul Front right there in your living room so you can press all your guests and family with your fine taste and podcast listening? Me neither. But hey, as a part of the Waypoint Outdoor Collective, you can now find The Foul Front and some other great podcasts on your Apple TV, your Roku, your Amazon Fire Stick, Smart TV, even your gaming console just by downloading the Waypoint app. And heck, while you're there, they got over 2,500 hunting and fishing shows on demand. Go download the Waypoint app today. 
one of the most legendary shows in the outdoors, is on Waypoint TV. Don't miss Primo's Truth About Hunting, Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.